This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome. I recently spoke with Sean Coco about his new book, Watching Vesuvius, A History of Science and Culture in Early Modern Italy. The University of Chicago Press published that book in 2013. This is an extraordinarily rich and carefully woven history of an icon in not just the landscape of Italy, the landscape of Naples, but also the landscape of the history of disaster, the history of fire, the history of science, and the history of images and art. Coco in this book manages to pay very careful attention to the kinds of genres, the kinds of forms, the kinds of stories that shaped the history of this amazingly influential object, both in early modernity and today. It's a story that has a lot to offer historians of science, historians of the image, historians of literature, historians of landscape and place, and it was just really moving to read. There are a lot of narratives that come out of this story that weave together, and as you'll hear in the course of the interview as well, not only accounts of the witnesses who experienced successive eruptions of Vesuvius and the people who are living right now and and have lived in the past in a landscape for whom Vesuvius was really an absolutely critical part of how they conceptualize their identity, but also the journey, the personal and scholarly and professional journey of Coco himself in coming to this topic, in understanding the place of Naples, of Vesuvius in his own production of identity and the ways that that actually shaped the narrative of the book. It's really interesting. It was fascinating to talk with him about it. And I hope you enjoy both the book and our conversation. We're here today to talk with Sean Coco about his new book, Watching Vesuvius, A History of Science and Culture in Early Modern Italy. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Sean, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Carla. I'm delighted uh, to be here virtually uh, to have this conversation. Great, me too. So, Sean, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background? What brought you to the history of science and to the history of Italy in particular? Well, I, I think I came to the to the history of Italy before I came to the history of science. So if I were to explain the kind of long, uh, in some respects, and personal pilgrimage to in, to my discipline and ultimately to uh, the completion of the, of the book, it's um, in some respects uh, the journey of someone who was uh, born in Italy and moved to America um, as a child. And in some respects, I think that my uh, my discipline, my profession is in part uh, a sort of recitation of memory of, of where I came from, even I would suspect my particular attention to landscapes and um, as uh, something rooted in that um, that movement uh, in my in my childhood. So I think in that respect that I'm not at all surprised that I uh, study Italy and, and I study its uh, its past. Um, 
nested within that. Uh, and I guess I would imagine that would be the, the history of science component and the history, environmental history dimensions of my, uh, of my work. Uh, some of those are simply uh, fortuitous and, and happenstance that, that really this uh, entire uh, book began with a uh, casual encounter with a, um, a letter written in the first uh, months of 1632, actually some some uh, about a, you know, two weeks or so after uh, the eruption narrated um, in the book, the great one narrated in the book, um, a, a letter written from Naples to Rome recounting uh, the episode. And that became, in some respect, um, my first contact with uh, an episode that I sensed from the outset um, was both a grand spectacle and widely reported in the period, but then also seemed to be um, uh, uh, lost in some respects in the telling of historians. And so uh, then I think the way I came into the history of science and into um, the other features of, of, of the work were uh, came about as a result of my investigation of the subject itself and, and, and then uh, in some respects forced me to gain um, literacy so that I could um, uh, grapple with, with and, and retell the story um, that I had encountered. And it's actually your mentioning of the importance of these ways of bringing together memory and home and landscape and literature, even in your own coming to this field and to this topic, really comes out in the subject of the book itself. And so it's really interesting to hear about your own journey to this subject, uh, about which I think you've written um, in a way that really brings out these resonances, home, memory, landscape. And so we'll talk about that, I'm sure, at much greater length um, in the course of our conversation. So the book at hand, um, the book looks at the role of literary and cultural and other kinds of engagement with Vesuvius as a way to get at several different kinds of things, histories of natural history, travel, observation, and many other phenomena of and in um, the early modern world in the location that you're talking about. So what brought you to this topic in particular? Why Vesuvius and why this particular approach to Vesuvius? Well, it seemed um, to, to pick up, uh, you know, from the from the comment on on the eruption itself. It seemed from the outset uh, that what what I had encountered in that um, description uh, again sort of stumbled upon um, when I was writing a graduate seminar paper uh, was a uh, a kind of story to be um, uh, peeled back layer uh, layer by layer. That uh, in even that simple um, account of uh, a few pages of uh, a brother writing another brother in Rome, um, I discerned that in it were various, uh, what seemed to me, layers of sensibility, a kind of multiple partaking between humanistic and religious and um, naturalistic understanding of what was an extraordinary spectacle, one that was um, unprecedented, transformative, and to the Baroque eye, you might imagine, particularly um, rich. Uh, theatrical in its um, color and light and sound. Um, and so um, in that respect, that was my uh, entry point into, into what seemed to me 
the, the, the possibility of telling a story relevant to the history of science that wasn't in many respects about a major theoretical breakthrough. In fact, we may have occasion to talk about that, but that's really one of the, I think, stories is, is, is a long and continuous observation that, that, that never um, immediately yielded any sudden kind of transformative insight, but was a, uh, in many respects, long and continuous process. And so um, in that respect, it seemed um, uh, an, an especially interesting way to think about uh, 17th century science and to uh, stretch a perspective both back from um, the 1631 eruption and then as I tried to do into the 18th century, which um, I sensed was far better um, understood by um, uh, historians of volcanology and even of the Grand Tour and so forth. Now, you've already mentioned that the earliest inklings of this project um, emerged or uh, were put on paper, perhaps, as a graduate seminar paper. That's right. This ultimately became a dissertation before it became the book, the quite beautiful book, actually, that we're talking about today. So can you talk for us um, just a little bit and in as much detail as you'd like um, about any aspects that you'd like of the process of transforming the project from a dissertation to a book? Were there any major transformations or um, the aspects of the process that you find to be particularly worthy of talking about or remarking upon? Yes, I would. I would note um, two. Uh, the first, uh, I, I, I can describe as a um, an expanded and and growing understanding of what I had in front of me. And and let me explain what I what I mean by that is that, that when I first approached it from uh, the perspective of a graduate seminar paper that became a doctoral dissertation, what um, I was pulled into most immediately um, was not uh, the, the history of science dimension, but the civic drama, which was uh, widely narrated in an, in an explosion of chronicles, uh, many of them printed, uh, many of them manuscript uh, that narrated the kind of civic response. And what I had um, initially, where I'd come to rest in my interpretation in the earlier phases of the project was uh, to have really emphasized in some respect the the, the extent to which um, uh, Vesuvius was an object of intense Neapolitan anxiety and fear um, and and read most narrowly from um, what were in some respects the better known features of uh, uh, of the response on the part of the city to this to this great uh, natural disaster um, so as I then began to think about um, how I could make the book more relevant in uh, larger ways uh, and to think about, uh, to work against the grain, actually, of my interpretation in a dissertation, to begin to be a little more skeptical about some of the assertions I had made um, in the earlier formulations of the argument. And in fact, um, that's when I began to discern that really woven through this early response was a tremendous natural curiosity and actually a, a remarkable, and I would suspect to be expected sophistication. This was, after all, 1630 and a moment of considerable importance in Italian science and in Europe more broadly, um, uh, a considerable sophistication in thinking about this, um, this phenomenon. And that's where the story of, of, of that natural
cultural curiosity of watching and thinking about the Vesuvius, of Vesuvius as um, a spectacle that in some ways could be um, chronicled and monitored and uh, through natural history, uh, creating a body of works that were propedeutic in some way to um, larger f- natural philosophical understanding about causes and effects in nature. And so um, it's when I began to um, unshackle my interpretation from what had been a uh, relatively narrow understanding um, in the earlier conception. That's when I, I, I discovered that um, it really was an episode uh, out from which I could move in many different vantage points. And, and the last of which I think to develop in my mind, and that was a transformation entirely wrought in the latter phases of the project, especially as I, I pulled um, more heavily from the material in the 18th century, which was what I'd always hoped to do. In other words, to connect um, uh, the the earlier instance of Vesuvius's uh, geological awakening, if you will, in the modern period to uh, the moment of its later, um, as we're more commonly aware, enlightenment, if you will, or 18th century attention, is as I began to um, uh, build the bridge between the earlier material and the later material, what um, I also began to understand that this was also a story in some respects of, of the elision of native accounts of Vesuvius, and that was something that I came to decide later on in, in, in writing would be one of the ways in which I would think about a kind of indigenous and, and local, if you will, of you know, moving between a, a variety of terms, tradition of describing and explaining. Um, and, and that became then a way of thinking about um, Vesuvius uh, as a metonym for the South and what uh, subsequently became the Grand Tour image of Vesuvius and often by, by metonymy also of Naples that, that Vesuvius became a symbol um, uh, that contained, uh, could be summoned to, uh, to manifest and explain the features of this uh, large and um, curious city from the perspective of many Northern Europeans. So that's, in some respects, is the disciplinary journey and and the kind of transformation of argument. Um, I think what I realized in the latter phases in more personal ways was that uh, this was, as I suggested in opening, a sort of recitation uh, memory. And I, and I, I became aware of the fact that um, uh, and that I was in some respects echoing um, both uh, my native idiom, uh, Italian, but also the idiom of the sources itself. And that um, perhaps there is some kind of mimesis in the way in which I um, uh, worked out the book in the end. Um, and, you know, one grows as a writer. Um, and, you know, if one looks at one's book from that remove, you see it um, as an uneven thing um, where moments you feel... Uh, um, like you, um, you, you, you were able to achieve what you were trying to do, and others where you see yourself perhaps in an earlier phase. So that personal dimension of the of the work became more evident to me um, in uh, the last uh, phases. Right. Now, a lot of um, a lot of the terms that you're using and invoking to describe the book itself, the arguments that it contains, and the process of transformation of the book. Um, touch on words like bridges, travel, continuity, journeys. And I think this is a perfect way to bring us into the beginning of the book itself and also um, to touch on one of the themes that you've already mentioned that I'd love to ask you to talk more about. So the story starts on a high-speed train uh, and part of your own trip from Naples. 
which brings us um, in early in the introduction into the significance of Vesuvius for defining modern Neapolitan identity. And you've talked a little bit about um, your own entry into the story and the ways that uh, the story that you're telling uh, really touch on your own experience as a as a writer, as a thinker, and as a person, um, and and as you know someone who identifies very much in some way with parts of the regions that you're talking about. Now, the book itself, though, focuses not on modern identity, but on a period earlier than this, and this is Vesuvius and the early modern. Now, you've already mentioned that one of the important theoretical contributions that you're making in the book, or I'll, this, is how, this is how I'll phrase it, right? One, I think one of the important contributions you're making in the book is to look at this period of uh, 17th century and afterwards, but really this period of the history of science, the history of knowledge making, the history of Italy, in terms not of radical breaks, not of really strong transformations, but in terms of continuities, in terms of um, sort of long and continuous processes of observation, et cetera, et cetera. So could you start us off um, as we get into the body of the book by talking about that, talking about how this uh, or your approach to the early modern and to continuity as a theme therein in working out the themes of the book? Yeah, and I, I might begin with that with the episode which which opens uh, the book, a, a personal one, which was an attempt um, on my part um, to 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 show myself in some respects, and then uh, try at various points to slide in and out of uh, out of view. But but a historian's effort to say, you know, here I am. Um, this is this is my um, connection, if you will, to to the to the larger argument, and um, I I. Throughout the, my attempt to think about this past episode, to think about a set of sensibilities and views of a, of a landscape um, centuries ago, um, I've, I've tried to hold in tension features of an essential um, perhaps relationship between uh, landscape and and um, cultures that is to say that that there is um, a flow a reiterativity perhaps um, in the human mind uh, between uh, the, the the natural world and how we uh, project meaning onto it um, and in that respect um, uh, to think about the ways in which uh, the proximity of this great city uh, still the case today, um, of course, in some respects, amplified and uh, enhanced by uh, the modern growth of the city. It sprawl up the flanks of Vesuvius far closer than it would have been uh, in the 17th century. So in some respects, bound even more tightly with what the volcano will someday do again. Um, I tried to hold those features in tension with what a historian is trained to to see, of course, which is uh, difference and change and transformation uh, over time. Um, and that became the way... Um, it, that I that I tried to see as an approach for moving over um, a span of centuries that took me some way back from this great opening episode in December of 1631, which marked um, the beginning of an active modern um, volcanological geological cycle for Vesuvius, um, a succession. Of, uh, of eruptions that lasted until uh, 19, uh, 1944 and its, uh, you know, its abrupt, if you will, transformation uh, of a landscape um, and um, the, 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 the larger features of the, of the story. Um, 
So it, it, it's in some respects also the response of someone who spent time in Naples and, and had a, a feel as I was on the Vesuvius Observatory, spoke to, to colleagues and friends in the city or in this particular episode to a stranger on a train about the way in which the mountain exerted in some ways a kind of uh, presence. It made me think in some respects of um, how uh, different uh, it was um, from the experience of the early modern period, which had seen it alive. And in fact, now it is descending into one of its long and brooding uh, silences, which is um, its current condition. Um, and uh, one uh, can only uh, wait and, of course, uh, imagine in some respects uh, what the features of that relationship will be in the centuries um, to come. Now, in the book, you're using an approach that brings to the history of these phenomena, to the history of natural history, uh, a special emphasis on the importance of place. And you've started to talk about this in many different ways um, already in the course of our early conversation. Now, one of the particular ways that comes out in the book that you're doing this is by taking uh, or taking a cue, taking approaches or methodologies from the realm of what we might call environmental history, to think about the agency, or at least the partial agency, of aspects of the landscape. So can you talk a little bit about that aspect of what you're doing in the book and the ways that you are bringing this kind of environmental history perspective and a, a discourse of, maybe not a discourse of agency, but an, an approach that might read like um, environmental historians' discourses about non-human agency to the way you're treating Vesuvius? Yes. Um, I mean, I guess I began, um, and this was uh, maybe not not accurate to say I began, I, the, the idea formed in my mind, uh, well in the, in the heart of thinking and writing about this, um, of a counterfactual. In other words, uh, what would have happened had Vesuvius um, not erupted and um, its um, uh, exertions on, um, on Neapolitan Baroque culture not been uh, present. And I guess that's um, where I, I began to formulate one of the arguments in the book that, that it in fact, um, the volcano's periodicity, the, the, the fact that it erupted when it did and how it did, um, when in fact in, in human and historical terms, it could have very easily simply done nothing, um, is something to, to, to reflect on. Um, that, uh, its particular, uh, force as, um, you know, as a thing, in some respect, acting with um, extraordinary power on um, its surrounding human world uh, seemed to me uh, a fundamental feature of the of the story, uh, and um, therefore a, a way to also understand what we see as a crystallized image from the vantage point of the modern period. I might offer um, an analogy drawn from early in the book when um, an English uh, officer. Um, Norman Lewis, who wrote very beautifully about Naples during um, the Second World War, he arrived in 1943 to see a destroyed city and was there um, after near the end of his year, uh, was witness to the last uh, eruption of the modern period. And um, he had by that point, um, as he wrote and, and um, reflected, many of the things I've suggested became the kind of um, um, attachments between Vesuvius and Naples. He had behind him um, a, a, a body century 
centuries of human interpretation and experience that I thought, as an historian, had not been examined. Where did they come from? What was the the force of that um, succession of events uh, of, of, of volcanic um, eruptions over the course of centuries? How had that shaped and, and worked to create the image uh, in the human mind and um, of, of Vesuvius as, as, as a volcano? Because, in fact, um, in its long silences, it is a rather humble mountain in some respects. I mean, um, one sees in its shape vestiges of its past force, um, uh, you know, its, its two humps, one of which is the caldera wall left by the great eruption of the, of the um, uh, classical period in 79 AD. And so that to the trained eye, one sees signs of its previous force. But when it is silent, it is uh, a, an entirely different place. And, in, and I, I suspect its exertions, if one wants to see them that way, uh, different. Thank you. And it's, I, I really like the way you're bringing in silence, because in many ways, through the course of the book, I think you say very early on, you use the words, um, Vesuvius stirred the conditions of its own representation. It also, in its uh, in its way, despite the long periods of silence, really spoke in a way that really shaped um, representations and language about it throughout the many years that you cover in the story. Now, central to the book, at least from the perspective of this reader, is a dialogue between the local and the global, or something that we might uh, describe as local and global. And this um, really manifests itself in at least a few different ways. For me, um, the relationship between something we might call native cultural expression, local to a particular place, and larger discourses that inform it, a relationship between the increasing exploration of new worlds and new lands by European um, explorers and merchants and others at this time, and the concomitant development of a notion of home and homeland, and also the development uh, of the relationship between the knowledge and observations of native inhabitants of a place and that of learned elite observers. And so we'll talk about aspects of these different, I think, registers of the relationships between local and global over the course of our conversation. But let's um, first, to get to that, look at perhaps one of the most local um, of events in this whole story, and that's the event that really starts us off um, into the larger exploration of what happens after the um, explosion of 19, or rather 1631, and that is the eruption of 1631. And so before um, we go any further, 1631, can you talk about uh, what happens? What is the um, nature of the event um, that really starts us off on this path to the rest of the narrative that we find later in the book? Well, it's certainly the you know, the great dramatic uh, spectacle. And, and often when I was writing this, I, I people would ask me, you know, you wrote, write about the eruptions of Vesuvius. And um, I would say, you know, not, not that eruption, not the classical eruption, you know, this eruption, the one of, of 1631. Um, in the early hours of uh, December 16th, 1631, and um, one can make a guess, but it would have been um, clearly uh, still dark, which amplified, you know, the kind of uh, theatrical, if you will, and, and, and effect of the, of the eruption itself. Um, a powerful uh, sub-Plinian alarm 
uh, eruption. This is what volcanologists deem it. So an eruption not as powerful as uh, Vesuvius's most powerful uh, eruptions, uh, for example, not as powerful to give a, an, an analogy maybe for uh, an American audience, not as powerful as the Mount St. Helens eruption is 1980, but nonetheless a very powerful and dangerous eruption burst out the western flank of, of Vesuvius and over the course of, of two days um, sent uh, a massive eruptive column um, tens of thousands feet in the into the atmosphere uh, and uh, with the ash and the clasts, uh, the lighter material dissipating primarily uh, to the east and in fact reaching Constantinople um, in uh, the days that followed. Within uh, hours, in fact, ash was falling, for example, over parts of Puglia and elsewhere. Um, that eruption um, had a very uh, various moments of in, um, of intensification in the days that followed, and um, uh, at one uh, one point, um, part of the eruptive column collapsed, and um, base surges rolled down the side of the mountain in Lahar, and um, towns on in the hinterland at the base of Vesuvius were um, were were destroyed, and it was a Seen, witnessed by um, uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of uh, observers, um, uh, those um, whose uh, witnessing we we can um, uh, see and discern and return to, were of course those learned observers who form um, you know a core of the sources of the book. Observers like uh, Giovanni Battista Manso, who was a great. Um, uh, Neapolitan nobleman and patron of the arts. He had written um, a biography of uh, Torquato Tasso. He had um, uh, been a patron of Caravaggio, had um, uh, met, uh, would, would meet Milton. Um, so an important literary and scholarly figure. And he uh, penned one of the uh, better um, known accounts of witnessing this great um, uh, eruptive column rising out of Vesuvius uh, in the early dark hours of that morning and then over the days that followed um, the civic drama that ensued, which was told um, in many respects, and here was the humanist reflex, um, through a kind of um, uh, re-evocation of the classical account um, uh, by uh, Pliny the Younger, who had famously described in uh, letters to uh, the historian Tacitus um, the exploits and observations of his uncle Pliny the Elder, who had uh, left from um, Cape Misenum and sailed into uh, into the maw of the eruption and had uh, famously uh, died in the, on the shore at the base of Vesuvius, uh, trying to help the local population. And so uh, there was a way in which the story from the outset, um, from those learned observers, was told in ways evocative uh, of the ancient episode. And quite striking uh, example, uh, for instance, um, Manso, or uh, another observer, um, Giulio Cesare Braccini, um, described closing the shutters of his um, palazzo as the eruption was uh, occurring and retiring to his study and uh, pulling out, um, uh, perhaps metaphorically, the letters of um, Pliny and um, uh, beginning to read them to those around him. So reading the past episode as they were enveloped by uh, the contemporary drama. The eruption itself killed um, 
any order, perhaps the estimates are in 4,000 or so. They vary. Um, they destroyed, um, as I mentioned earlier, many of the surrounding uh, towns and created an enormous um, uh, uh, natural disaster for the for the civic authorities in, in Naples itself. Uh, thousands streaming uh, across um, a bridge that, that uh, in uh, the pre-modern period um, crossed a, a little river that, that uh, uh, found its mouth in the in the in the Bay of Naples, the Sebeto River, over this Madalena Bridge, thousands and thousands uh, tried to enter into the city, and so a great civic drama unfolded. Um, uh, the most uh, uh, important moment of which was in the two days after the eruption, a great ceremonial procession, which at this point had uh, marshaled both the civic and ecclesiastical authorities, bearing um, relics of the of the saint San Gennaro, among others, um, were uh, marched out of the Porta Capuana, um, one of the eastern gates of the city, um, and in a famous um, capture decades later um, by the Neapolitan artist Domenico Gargiulo, um, the the relics and the intervention of San Gennaro, who was seen, according to accounts, flying over the crowd, um, the great threatening um, uh, eruptive uh, column uh, appeared to bow and recede and turn away, and uh, um, and Naples was spared. Um, what we know. Oh, uh, no, I can stop there. No, no, please go on. I, I mean, what we know from uh, the volcanological record is that um, Vesuvius uh, generally tends to spare Naples. Naples, um, although it is only six miles away, has been historically fairly um, uh, removed from the most immediate effects of Vesuvius's eruptions, although it is my understanding, and here I speak not as a volcanologist, but as an historian, um, but it is my understanding that there is um, considerable evidence uh, now to show that, in fact, Vesu- uh, Vesuvius has the force from its uh, earlier eruptions, eruptions that actually date um, from before the first century um, AD, has the force, in fact, to even its most immediate ways um, uh, reach out and devastate um, uh, Naples uh, itself and not just the immediate hinterland. So um, in that respect, it was an eruption um, in the pattern of uh, of Vesuvius's um, eruptions, um, and and not its most uh, destructive. So, in that respect, the story of it being saved has a kind of um, you know volcanological geological underpinning, which was that that the eruption was um, not as forceful, not as not as explosive and dangerous as it as it might have been. Now, those of us who, um, for listeners who may not be familiar with San Gennaro as part of this history, those of us who grew up in or anywhere near the Bronx, um, <laughs> may, may, I, myself being one of them, may be familiar most with San Gennaro for the festival every year of um, San Gennaro Vesuviano um, that features just the most delicious sausage and pepper heroes <laughs> that we've ever seen. But for listeners who may not be aware of uh, the longer history of San Gennaro, this was a saint that um, uh, was famous in this context for a miracle by which his relics, his blood, was actually liquefied. That's right. right. Yes, uh, and um, that uh, the martyrdom of San Gennaro um, uh, it was uh, it was a story uh, told, um, of course, in many um, uh, classical sources, and it, it appears um, even in the in the accounts of 1631 that they were um, well aware in advance, actually, of the 1631 eruption of uh, San Gennaro's uh, role as a, um, uh, a sort of sacred mediator between kind of the you know the 
the, the, the anger of God is manifested through um, a natural disaster and, and the protection of Naples. And the, the episode that came most readily to, to mind to 1631 observers was the eruption of 472, which had um, in uh, the record of Chronicles uh, um, been one of the, uh, the, the first instance where, in fact, the relics and San Gennaro's intervention had um, spared uh, Naples from uh, a far uh, graver uh, tragedy. So um, uh, that dimension of, a, I think, of the way I sort of um, tried to think about it in part, where were the repositories of memory um, when the eruption occurred? And of course, um, San Gennaro's role in protecting Naples was um, one conduit, in fact, for um, going back on the part of 1631 uh, observers into the historical record, um, not to just simply to the classical eruption, but to previous instances of Vesuvius's angry manifestation, and of course to connect it with one of the city's most important um, religious cults. Now, speaking of what was happening in advance of the eruption, um, this actually leads us really nicely into the next little part of the book. Now, you're talking um, as of Chapter 2, uh, but also um, we'll, we'll continue talking about this um, in later chapters, about the ways that different kinds of writing actually shaped how Vesuvius and its eruptions were understood, uh, mostly as of 1631 and after. Now, in the weeks and days before the eruption, and this is um, where I'm coming from, you know, speaking of what was happening in advance, there were actually signs that something was happening, and some of those signs included moans and sighs um, that people in the area were hearing, bulging of the mountains, Etc. Etc. And these are um, recorded um, in texts that you're citing in the book. Now, importantly, these were signs that were noticed by local inhabitants of Naples. So let's talk a little bit about that. In the kinds of writings that emerge after the explosion, and often writings by learned or elite members of societies, um, often they are in different ways invoking the observations of local inhabitants that may not have been um, learned or from elite groups of people into their uh, narratives of the events um, and into their uh, attempts to explain um, what may have happened and understand what might be happening next after the eruption. So this actually gets at a really interesting epistemic problem that's coming up more and more um, among uh, historians right now, especially historians of science who are interested in histories of observation. And so some um, historians like Deb Cohen, who are working on earthquake histories, are looking at this. There's a, a wonderful volume um, on histories of observation where the, the nature of trust and credibility of local observations is very much at issue in a lot of the studies in that volume. And so can you speak a little bit to this particular epistemic issue as it um, shapes what's happening in the story here? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it really, it becomes a question, of course, of what constituted, um, you know, expert knowledge. And um, I, I, the way, uh, you know, I came into this was thinking about what I found really kind of tremendously haunting and um, uh, feature of this uh, story was to think about, in fact, what had been discerned in the days and weeks um, before the eruption occurred and seeing um, learned observers, many of whom were, of course, at that point, writing from Naples. And so, um, you know, from the city itself, perhaps with, with no immediate um, experience with what was being described 
described and scrambling in some respects to to gather um, what we might imagine is kind of data information about what had um, uh, what had perhaps foreshadowed um, the the burst, if you will. And uh, what became evident, as you suggested, is that um, these uh, these chroniclers, these writers, were um, in dialogue with um, local inhabitants who seem to have, um, in many many instances, re- reported features which are still of um, great significance for volcanologists today. Signs, in fact, of the uh, impending eruptions, you know, water levels in wells dropping, um, deformations and bulging, of course, as you noted on the on the mountain uh, itself, sounds. I found those those features particularly striking that, in fact, um, you know, creaks and groans, if you will, as there was, or moans of size, as they were often described, would have been um, uh, detected. And so the transference of that um, awareness of what was occurring, of course, on the part of those who were not equipped as the learned observers were to then connect that um, uh, to a body of theory, um, uh, which was still this point fundamentally Aristotelian about earthquake and um, and volcanism as a kind of secondary effect, um, to connect that to a sort of larger structure uh, of understanding. And so here one was working, I felt, in, uh, you know, often by a kind of, um, you know, intuition that you had to try to, to read um, for what the, often the learned observers did not um, say or the, the little clues that they would give as to how they um, gathered that kind of proximate, close, local um, um, uh, experience of, uh, of what had come uh, in advance of, of the eruption itself, and then how they had, um, in ways that, as you suggest, connect to the larger um, d- sort of interpretation about the epistemologies of early modern science, how um, that um, uh, information was transformed into a kind of credible witnessing, and that would then um, become, uh, as I argue, a kind of pattern of interpretation for Vesuvius, where watching Vesuvius um, became, um, in a sense, uh, propedeutic, fundamental to then um, uh, uh, explaining the natural causes of the, of the, of the phenomenon concealed within, uh, within it. Um, so difficult to see in its entirety and so, so elusive in that respect to, to, uh, to a full understanding. Now, I really, again, love this invocation um, of silence and the importance of silences, because in many ways, as we move further into the book, this, uh, practice and craft of reading the silences in the accounts of the observers is very much akin to the craft of reading the silences of the mountain itself or of the history of the mountain. And as we move further um, from this part of the book in which you're introducing the importance of vernacular knowledge, um, vernacular genres of writing, including uh, relazioni, Mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing that sort of not entirely wrong, Um, we move from experience and observation to ways of taking that and situating it and -hmm. situating the mountain through it in time. And this brings us into a really wonderful chapter chapter three, where the importance of time and of history starts to be really, really important to what's happening in the story as the people who are writing about the volcano are trying to understand the causes of its eruption and sort of how to then 
place this singular event in time, both in the past and in the future. Can you talk um, a little bit about this part of the book and about the importance of maybe two aspects of this, the ways of integrating notions of the causes of mm. the um, of the eruption of the volcano and the causes of eruptions of volcanoes more widely within this larger frame of relating history and experience. Um, and also sort of, you've mentioned the importance of periodicity and this comes up in this chapter. So could you talk a little bit about uh, those issues as they've informed what you're trying to do here in the book? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is where, where I think about the relationship between Historia and, and Causa. And so, uh, I mean, in part, it's a story about the, the vitality and actually the significance of um, humanistic traditions, their role in creating a body of, of natural interpretations um, about Vesuvius's uh, volcanism, that the Ars Historica, the um, capacity to um, uh, narrate the event, if you will, of nature. And so, you know, picking up from what we were just talking about, to aestheticize and transfer vulgar knowledge, um, now often in the vernacular, but um, in a vernacular that still was um, conveying its Latinity in that respect, that it was um, the structure of expression was was still fundamentally um, humanistic. And so uh, turning that into history as history was understood um, and and then that 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 became a, a way I found very um, compelling both to create a contemporary history of the episode, which, as I suggested, was a, a building block for then trying to understand to record its many particular manifestations and then to assemble those in a relationship to a larger structure of theory um, uh, that that not only worked in the present circumstance, but that it heightened an awareness in fact, of uh, the body of previous um, um, uh, explanations. And then, in fact, to understand what Vesuvius was doing in the present, one would also walk back into the past and assemble its previous patterns of eruptivity. And again, uh, although I'm not a volcanologist, I suspect it's fair to say that that it is still very much a historical science, one that um, needs that uh, kind of uh, chronicling and assemblage that uses reads the past in order to understand in some respect the presence. And so that's where I thought how really equipped they were in some respects to begin to create what would become um, in some, you know, kind of long continuity part of, of our um, contemporary, if you will, and modern understanding of, uh, of Vesuvius, that that's the beginning uh, in some respects of that story. For Neapolitans themselves, I think that sense of time uh, was amplified in, in other corollary ways. And it was to, I often found this in accounts that where they would say uh, they were talking about the past, the present, and the future. So uh, features of a response where one would look into the previous instances back in that humanistic record, at least in 1631, but after that, the body of successive um, um, uh, chronicles of the eruption, one would narrate its immediate and present features. And then, as I suspect any culture um, would want to do, prognosticate or try to imagine what uh, this might foreshadow, what were the outcomes, and not simply um, in ways that were um, 
meant to be portentous, the importance of some impending um, political cataclysm or transformation, although those were one of the um, bodies of, of interpretation. That was one of the bodies that, of interpretation that came out. But also in other ways, I think we might recognize this sort of more, you know, more practical. Would there be plague following? How how soon could people return to, to the sides of, of Vesuvius? Would it erupt again? When? Uh, how soon? Uh, those kinds of things that are uh, features also of a, of a kind of immediate and local response to to a phenomenon that is so um, sudden in its manifestation and so difficult even today with all of the ways in which Vesuvius now can be watched, um, so difficult to predict and, and understand. Thank you so much, Sean. Now, as we um, move into the the later part of the book, let's talk a bit about Naples um, and Naples as a place, because just as much as the book is about uh, Vesuvius as a mountain and and the history of science, it's also about the history of the city. It's also about urban history and this particular kind of urban space. And in this context, the particular political situation of Naples in this period plays a really important role in many of the arguments of the book and in much of what's going to happen in the second part of the book especially. So can you talk about um, where Naples was politically, um, especially in the middle of the 17th century and its relationship to Spain perhaps in particular? Yes, I mean Naples' integration, its place in the in the Spanish imperial system, of course, is is one of the fundamental features of its um, of its history in in the period certainly um, between the beginning of the sixteenth sixteenth century early fifteen hundreds to early seventeen hundreds but but really in some respects in the decades also to follow so um, Naples acquired by um, really the late fifteen hundreds. Uh, a reputation for uh, being a kind of restive and um, difficult city to control, a reputation that the minds of many Europeans was confirmed in 1647 when one of the largest and most significant urban rebellions in uh, of the early modern period uh, occurred, a moment when, in fact, um, uh, with no... Um, lasting separation. Naples was, however, able to, to, to in a sense, locally challenge um, uh, the Spanish presence in the city. And um, in many respects, what that has left in the historiographical record is, is a long um, echo of, of seeing uh, Naples as particularly troubled, particularly restive, um, and particularly difficult to control. I think the, the, the lean of, of, of uh, I've tried hopefully carefully um, to suggest uh, in my book, but also um, those on, on scholarship I, I, I build, scholars like John Marino and, and others. Um, uh, that 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 in fact Naples's place in uh, in the Spanish system was was um, if you want to want to call it that much um, uh, more stable than that story generally tells, and that in fact the city benefited greatly from its connections uh, to Spain uh, culturally, um, in terms of its um, uh, even its its prestige as a um, as a as a capital. Um, uh, deeply conscious, of course, and this was is one of the threads running through it of its own um, civic history, its own uh, autonomy, and its own um, uh, traditions of, of monarchy, which over the course of the Spanish period um, saw it pulled 
in many respects ever um, more fully into into the into the Spanish system. So um, that means that there's a there's a story of of cooperation, if you will, but also of uh, resistance. And what I've tried to suggest, particularly, uh, I think, in the fourth chapter, contesting Vesuvius, that that in the 1640s, Vesuvius um, appears at surface um, one of its very minor eruptions as a place where you can wit- witness the kind of contest for um, um, uh, Naples's civic and um, political identity and its relationship uh, to Spain and how that was uh, in play um, um, and uh, how it engendered resistance its its place in the larger um, Habsburg um, Habsburg Empire. Great. And, and this is a really, um, I won't ask you to talk anymore about chapter four because, um, we, you know, we need to get to volcanoes on the moon and, and other uh-huh. things. But I'll just mention for listeners that there's a really wonderful, um, account in this chapter of the ways that Vesuvius takes on these resonances of nationhood and resistance in very different ways, especially after this 19, uh, uh, I keep wanting to put you in the 20th century, the 1647 um, revolt of Neapolitan commoners around this planned fruit tax um, in particular. So it's really, um, it's a wonderful account in that chapter. Okay, so let's get to volcanoes on the moon very briefly. Though. Um, so on the, um, in chapter five, you're doing um, some really wonderful things here to take this discourse of Vesuvius and show the ways that it's both being analogized to other kinds of entities, especially bodies and machines, but also the ways that the volcanoes in this period in particular are part of a larger kind of analogy making whereby people are um, observers of non-earthly planetary bodies are seeing uh, a kind of topography of the earth elsewhere and are developing a vocabulary for talking about that. So can you talk a little bit about um, what's happening in volcanology in, in that period, in that context, um, off and beyond the earth and on the surface of the moon, etc., cetera, um, and, and elsewhere? Yes. I, in some respects, this is where, you know, this is really the the story of no theoretical breakthrough and looking in some respects at the margins in the chatter, if you will, of 17th century um, science and see where um, volcanism and volcanoes. So to actually explain a kind of distinction, in other words, the phenomenon itself, but also the place. Um, and those were not entirely the same thing, that they they they, they were um, in the understanding um, clearly connected, but that those two features um, often were, were pulled apart. Vesuvius is a place, volcanism is a phenomenon. And so following that story and in thinking about the larger, if you will, um, challenge to Aristotelian natural philosophy. Um, it seemed to me that looking at um, the transposition, if you will, of terrestrial features onto uh, celestial bodies, which of course was uh, Galileo's um, argument in The Starry Messenger, or at least his, um, his um, the image which he, he 
created of the moon, which became a challenge to many of the fundamental tenets of Aristotelian natural philosophy, uh, and that to try to follow what I hoped was not really a linear progression, but a kind of an imaginative surfacing here and there of, um, of instances where the volcanoes are up there and become manifestations, in fact, of a nature that was uh, not broken up between a sublunary realm and a celestial realm. And so the, the big questions that in some respects the observational astronomy and mathematical astronomy had been uh, raising for uh, considerable time by that point. Um, Where I would, I think this is maybe one chance to reflect on some of the ways I might revisit um, the the arguments I made there and and offer them an additional kind of inflection uh, now as a subject of reflection. Um, uh, When, uh, for example, I cite the example of Francesco Fontana perhaps imagining um, this ater conus, this uh, what is possibly a kind of either a pit or a volcano coming out on the surface of Mars, subsequently reflecting, I think that this could also be an image of Dante's hell that is, um, you know, projected. So what that's made me think in some respects is that present in this imaginative um, appearance, if you will, of volcanoes was both, as I suggest in the book, the increasing experience with the phenomenon itself. Um, and that, I think, has to be part of the story. Uh, but also the literary antecedents that would have informed, say, even Galileo's imagination when he uh, depicted the moon with mountains and valleys and so forth. One could go to Ariosto and see that imagined previously. And so I guess what I was trying to suggest is the play between um, uh, you know, the imaginative foundations of early modern science, where in literature and poetry in other ways... Um, things were imagined and sources of inspiration before they were quote-unquote seen, um, but to also couple that with the increasing experience with volcanism as a phenomenon that would, by the 1660s now, have a um, body of observation circulating in Europe's Republic of Letters and would therefore be subject to um, to speculation. And, there, and volcanoes themselves became um, features of um, celestial bodies that were, um, by terrestrial analogy, part of a single nature um, and not the, you know, the two natures, if you will, of the Aristotelian, um, of a larger kind of Aristotelian cosmology. Wonderful. Thank you, Sean. Now, as we move to um, the end of the book, I just want, I won't ask you to talk about chapter six because um, just to, to make sure that I don't keep you for two hours because I could ask you a ton of things, but I will mention for listeners um, that there is a wonderful chapter here called Watching and Philosophizing from Controversy to Cosmopolitanism that looks at the ways that it actually became dangerous, among other things, it became dangerous to study the volcano in the context of a 1680s and 1690s crackdown in Naples against kinds of thought, atomist and Cartesian thought. Um, you mentioned in here how volcano watchers become cosmopolitan in a new way, and also uh, re- sort of coming back to this language of theater um, that we've been uh, talking a little bit about over the course of our conversation, you, you also show the ways that the eruption becomes not just a natural spectacle, but an urban spectacle. And these ideas of urban spectacle and urban memory that come up at various points in the book also reiterate one of the things um, about the book that we've talked a little bit about, which is this importance of Naples as a city to what's happening in the scholarship of uh, Vesuvius 
Vesuvius and also volcanoes more broadly. So as we come to the last chapter before the conclusion, though, there's this um, coming to a head of an argument that we mentioned early on in the interview, and now we have an opportunity to get back to, which is the connection between volcanoes, the study of volcanoes, and ideas about the quality, the nature, the characteristics of inhabitants in Naples in particular, but in the South more generally. So here, um, the chapter opens with this really wonderful image that I think um, no, this is a, that's a different one, but it's it's an image of six men in a crater, which uh, depicts a party of volcano explorers in about 18, uh, 1750, so the mid-18th century, um, which gets us into this 18th century context that you were talking about early on. So can you talk a little bit about um, this 18th century context in terms of both um, the importance of images um, increasingly to knowledge of volcanoes, but also um, in terms of the increasing importance of volcanoes as becoming exemplars or metonyms of certain aspects of the South. Yes, this in some respects was a kind of walking back from uh, the beautiful um, images of, um, say, uh, William Hamilton's Campi Flegre that are... um, uh, you know, conjoined images often of a Neapolitan populace gesticulating and um, the volcano uh, erupting. And to walk back from that kind of um, grand tour, uh, uh, the fixing of a grand tour perception to, um, again, the bridges and linkages with a previous and existing tradition. And um, you cite the, the images by uh, that were in Giuseppe Meccati's um, observations on on Vesuvius from the from the mid 1700s, 1754, where you see, as you describe this this party of uh, volcano observers, um, you know, tremendously close, and um, you know, at, at a close view, in fact, what you see is really the um, accomplishment of this tradition by that point, that, uh, in fact, a tradition of proximate observation of careful natural philosophizing, in other words, taking natural history um, and um, within the limits allowed by the existing political and intellectual climate, make that body of observations um, a setup for uh, a larger kind of natural philosophical explanation of what was going on. Was the, you know, was the earth, did the earth have a burning fiery core or were volcanoes simply burning at the surface, and there was no consensus in any of these things. Um, but a but an existing body of transmission or of, of watching that was also by this point um, changing in some important respects. Um, first of all, the the image, the engraved image, becoming I I, I suspect, and this is certainly my interpretation, uh, an increasing part of the argument, a way to figure, in fact. Um, uh, the argument, say, of chemical ignition, that volcanoes were erupting because of sort of sulfur-rich exothermal reactions at the surface, and so to portray those, to even move telescopically in to show uh, how one might walk up Vesuvius and get close to the crater and watch its manifestations and its eruptions, and um, that seeing all of these particular things, um, and a good watcher would do so unencumbered by the adherence to any particular philosophical system, which was part of actually the Jesuit Ratio Studiorum. So you see, in fact, the, 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 this importance of earlier 17th century um, approaches to natural uh, philosophy. Um, 
that that became um, part of what, in some respects, um, to go to the beautiful image of Hamilton uh, uh, or in Hamilton's Campi Flegrei, became a kind of appropriation, too, on the part of um, increasingly cosmopolitan body of watchers, the English and the French, Dolomieu and, and Hamilton are two, two examples in that latter chapter, who come to the South um, to see the people, to see the landscape, to see its past, um, to watch volcanoes, among other things, and that there is a kind of picturesque forming in uh, geology, as I as I suggest in the, in the title itself. And so when you think about someone like Dolomieu traveling in the Aeolian Islands um, in the later 1700s, watching intently in, in a kind of ethnographical study um, the inhabitants in these still, by the standards of the you know, by the 18th century, these were very remote and rugged and often very poor places and, and creating a narrative of the relationship between locals and the landscapes they inhabit, one consonant with enlightenment theories about climate and so forth, uh, that um, uh, I thought, here is where you can walk back from what we are familiar with often as historians, um, you know, particularly the 18th century image, almost sort of created out of nothing in, the, in, a, in a kind of traditional interpretation. And I guess that's where I wanted to work against it, say, you know, here are where we can see the origins and the, and the ongoing significance of an earlier body of observations to that now changing um, representation of Vesuvius, one might say enhanced um, by uh, the visual image's capacity to record in uh, corollary ways the minute changes and those changes um, becoming part of a structure of explanation, to watch where the lava flows, to see how a crater might have collapsed, how the accretions were building up the volcano, um, became ways to talk about theory, about the about the larger kind of theoretical understanding of what was going on when volcanoes erupted, which many 18th century uh, writers would, in the end, throw up their hands and say, you know, we really don't know. So this is actually a perfect place to wrap up. We started with a volcano throwing up uh, smoke and rock and lava, and we're ending with throwing up of hands. So it's really nicely parallel. So, Sean, thank you so much. There's a ton of material in the book that is wonderful and fascinating that we didn't have a chance to talk about in the course of our conversation. And so I hope listeners will, of course, just go out and read the book, um, which is a, which is what these interviews are meant to encourage. And it's absolutely worth doing. It's beautifully written, um, as well as being really compellingly argued. So in the course of our conversation, we talked about a lot of aspects of the book, but there's a lot that we didn't talk about. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, I guess, uh, I mean, maybe to pick up where we... Where where we where we ended? Um, I mean, I think I would say there there are two things, and perhaps uh, might start with a nod to to the cover, which I uh, uh, am delighted with, to tell you the truth, because the 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 designer Natalie Smith uh, deliberately blurred uh, the image, and in some respect, that is one of the large. Uh, I felt that the cover understands one of the largest um, ideas, if you will, in the book, the natural movement and human gesture um, and the, the relationship between uh, those two things. And I think in that respect, that um, was one of the, the meditations, if you will, that, that um, I sustained in, in writing this book to try to think about um, human relationship with the natural world as historically contingent, shaped 
by, um, of course, um, natural the, the choices human beings make to respond to an environment in their way in the ways that they do, uh, but also to think about, uh, as you noted at the beginning of an interview, the ways in which a landscape or Vesuvius in this instance might have stirred it, the conditions of its own, um, you know, of its own representation, and and to think about those two things together, um, and to leave off in a sense on a on a reflection, which is where the book ends, that in fact, um, this uh, story, if you want to think of it, is, is in by no means over. Um, that Vesuvius has um, now gone silent. And as the volcanologist I had the fortune of meeting uh, told me when um, I was there, and they watch it with intense interest, it, you know, there was a little tremor and earthquake, it moved a little bit, but fundamentally that its long silence now um, will likely hold. Um, and that is the the haunting and dangerous and misleading, in some respects, feature of it to human culture that one, um, of course, cannot predict as a historian. Uh, but perhaps one can reflect on um, the recurrence someday, sometime of of what um, I tried to tell was the particular story of of centuries ago. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, it's, and the cover is is absolutely beautiful. And this one of the uh, reasons I stumbled a little bit when talking about the images a little bit earlier is that I had in describing that image that the chapter opens with, I was like, and it's on the cover. No, it's not on the cover. That's a different, beautiful image on the cover. They're both beautiful images. But anyway, so now that the book is done, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Well, I uh, my my ideas now hover around the shore um, and the Mediterranean coast. Um, this was something that is again perhaps consonant with what I suggested earlier. This kind of long and ongoing strand and in, in how I approach um, uh, this Italian past, if you will. Um, and I've uh, become increasingly interested in thinking about um, the long stretches in between cities that Italian maritime history has often been um, the history of. of of cities uh, on, but but to think about the shore itself as a as a natural uh, boundary, of course, um, uh, a place of encounter with the natural world, and one where one might leverage the, some of the, the questions I've thought about um, in this book to an entirely different kind of setting. One uh, um, actually, I think that presents um, its own uh, particular uh, challenges. Of course, not a single place, tremendously different still in the ways that um, a a volcano might be dynamic and active, and yet also subject to transformations uh, and and changes. So um, that's where I hope to be in the coming years, in a sense, walking along Italy's uh, historic coasts um, uh, centuries ago. Sounds wonderful. Well, best of luck with that project, and thank you again for making time to talk with me about this one. Thank you. It's been an absolute delight. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.